I'm Chad. And I'm Cheese. And we are the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Our podcast covers news, startups, AI, automation, programmatic, and all the things the kids are excited about. (laughs) And then we drown it with a healthy dose of snark, attitude, and four-letter words. Subscribe to the Chad and Cheese Podcast today, wherever you listen to your podcasts. My initial theory is that recruiters who become employer branders do so because they're attracted to the concept of creativity. I mean, think of it as a recruiter. From a recruiter's point of view, your job is to live in an ATS, which is the least creative environment in the universe, in the known universe and probably beyond. Um, You are being rejected over and over and over and over and over again, both directly and indirectly. You're ghosted, you're ignored, you're yelled at, you're um, looked at to do magic and yet never really thanked very often for said magic. And you look at what the employer brand is doing, writing tweets, making Facebook posts, chatting on Facebook, chatting on IM, making banners, using Photoshop, putting videos together, running around the office with a video camera, or maybe just a phone, grabbing content, right? That looks, you know, if I was a recruiter and I saw that, I'd be like, what am I doing? (laughs) Get me out of here. I want some of what they're having. And it looks creative, and it is creative. And I think if you look at the root of the word creative, we're creating, and that is incredibly attractive to a lot of different people, myself included, and I'm gonna guess, yourselves included. We like to create. It is both terrifying and wonderful all at the same time, sometimes in equal measure, not always. But I want to make sure that when we talk about what our employer brand is and how we activate our employer brand, that we don't ignore the less fun part of it. And that is the concept of positioning. Because I'm going to go ahead and throw out the gauntlet down. And I'm going to say right now to this microphone in this empty dining room, The positioning is actually more important to your employer brand than your creative ever will be. We'll be right back. Welcome to the TalentCast, the world's most caffeinated employer brand podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis, and I've been doing employer brand for years now, and I absolutely love the industry. I love how it's growing. I love how it's changing. And I've tried to do my part to elevate the concept, to get everybody to understand the power employer brand can have in hiring, attracting, and retaining talent. So we try to really focus on driving home the idea that this is a calling and a craft. It's a lot of getting your hands dirty, but it's also a lot of big strategic thinking. And that's where we kind of live, that kind of uh, Venn diagram, the intersection between those the big ideas and the getting the details right. So we talk a lot about employer brand and how to do it right and how to think about it and how to look at your problems in a whole new way. Ready to rock? One, two, three, let's go. Hey, how you doing? James Ellis here, recording live from Chicago as per the huge. Um, I'm going to skip the housekeeping because I have a different kind of announcement today. I have a very special announcement today. I have been looking forward to this announcement for a very long time. I cannot tell you how long I've been. It's, it's, it's almost sad how long I've been looking forward to this announcement. The books are ready. Oh, did I say books? I know I had mentioned book before. I know that I had talked about a publication deal. I know that I had talked about putting a book out into the world, which, yes, I've been planning this for a long time, but it's books now. So here's the deal. Today I'm announcing officially, for realsies, uh, the publication of two books. The first of which, the one that is now available as we speak, 
It's called the Employer Brand Handbook, Volume One, Working with Recruiters is the real world guide to working with recruiters. Now, you and I know each other pretty well, and you know how much I love to be conceptual and abstract and strategic, but this book is not that. This book is hard tactics. It is guidelines. It is step-by-step cheat sheets. It is checklists. It is literally there are emails you can copy and paste and dump into that you can get the work done immediately. I tried to write it all for you. It is a complete and total guide to getting your recruiters to work with you as brand champions instead of against you. Um, I want to thank the good people in both the Employer Brand Forum and the Talent Brand Alliance Forum because this conversation came up a couple of times at exactly the right time I was looking for it. So I was thrilled that there was a good problem I could help solve. So it is super low cost because it's a brand new thing. And I want everybody who listens to this podcast and everybody who's in the employer brand field to have a first crack at it. So it's five bucks online at Amazon. The link is in the show notes. Um, Or you can just go to Amazon and type in my name or type in employer brand handbook. And it's the one with the plant on it, right? But that's just one book. Oh, that's right. That's just one book because the big book, the Magilla, the big gorilla, the 4,000 pound monster, the thing I've been talking about and writing in terms of some one way or another for what feels like about a year and a half. And that's about accurate. It's called Talent Chooses You. And it is coming out June 15th. However, you can pre-order it today. It is now open for pre-ordering on Amazon. Again, if you just Google or Google or type in Amazon or what have you, Talent Chooses You. And my name, it's right there. Um, I'm also keeping it, trying to keep the cost really low for launch because I want everybody in the industry to see it, to hear it, so that they can talk about it. So they can write a review, they can argue with me, they can have it. I want my people, that is the people within the sound of my voice, to get first crack and as cheap as price as possible. It is available on paperback, it is available on ebook, but it's always available on Amazon. So go take a look. I am super pumped by this. I am super thankful for everybody who helped make it happen. And by the way, when you read the book, you'll realize how many people that is, but I'm super excited for it. So I hope you get a, I hope you get something out of it. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, obviously, if you have questions about it, let me know. But let's get to the podcast. So yeah, I don't think creative... Now, you know what? I almost got myself in trouble there. I almost said creative is not that important. And that is such a lie. Oh, that is that is the clickbaitiest thing I could possibly say at that given moment. Here's what I want to say. Your str- a brand, the strength of your brand is not predicated on your creative. It simply isn't. And I cannot think of a brand that's lasted for very long purely on creative. Now... That's not to say that employer brand can't leverage and use creative to push and extend its reach, to change the sentiment of how people see that brand. I 1000% believe that to be absolutely possible. I also believe that 95% of the time it's not done well, but that's neither here nor there. That's a whole different podcast. But truly, if you want people to, and and this is to steal from Elena Valentine with whom I just did a podcast this week, um, and I'm stealing this line, but the job of the creative is to create an emotion. That's what it's there. And if you do it right, you can create amazing motions. You can instill hope. You can instill um, anxiety. You can make people happy. You can make people laugh. You can make people disappointed or sad or, or, or regretful or even maudlin. You can fill people with ennui if you really just feel like that's a useful thing you want to do. And by the way, sometimes you just like to say the word ennui. It's just a fun word. It rolls off the tongue. I won't even get into any of that stuff. And it's true. 
good creative creates emotion and that emotion is what generally tends to change behavior. And let us be fair for one minute, you and I, all amongst ourselves, our job is to change behavior from not applying for the job to considering applying for the job and maybe even applying. That is our job, to change that behavior. Emotions are how you do it. That said, creative while powerful and good in moving the emotions, uh, how do you pick? How do you pick which emotion? How do you figure out what makes sense to you? Think about, you've, you've all seen the uh, great YouTube videos where someone takes a movie and write, makes a new trailer for it that completely inverts the premise of the movie, right? They take a horror movie and they trim it such that it becomes, the trailer makes the movie look like a comedy. It makes it look like a slapstick, you know, fun-filled, hilarious, knee-slapping adventure, right? But it's, you know, if you watch the movie, you're like, that's blood and gore. That's clearly a guy chasing somebody with a knife. Oh my goodness, that's horrible, that's disgusting. But you can trim it so that you can create a different kind of emotion. That's the magic of editing. For those of you who've, uh, who like, I like, you know, it's funny. I like to watch movie trailers sometimes more than I like to watch movies. If you've seen the trailer for, um, oh, I'm blanking. Oh, oh that, Love, Lovecraft Country. Um, the trailer is epic. Oh my God, the use of the music, the use of the song, the way they do it, it's just amazing editing. And it absolutely evokes an emotion. And having read the book, I know what motion it's emotion it's probably trying to evoke, and it's dead on. It's very much aligned. But with a good movie, or in this case, a good show, you've got so much raw material from which you can build the trailer that you still have to make choices about what the feeling the trailer should create. Another one of my favorite trailers is for the movie 300. And laugh at me all you want, but the way they use that Nine Inch Nails song just was epic. The movie is goofy and stupid and it's got a Jared Butler in it. So, you know, uh, I guess it's all in CGI. So, uh, all right, I guess. But the trailer just makes you feel like you can go out and just you know, wrestle a bear. I mean, let's be fair. It is just, it created amazing emotions. But you're, you're taking content from a 100-minute movie or a 600-minute uh, TV show series you cherry pick what you want to say. How you stick those cherry picked moments together and the music or the, the audio you put on top of it creates emotion. And you can make this emotion be and do anything. But again, what emotion's gonna work for you? But really it's not even just what emotion. It's, there's a larger question here that we're not really unwrapping and that is the concept of position. Now, I've definitely talked about position before, but it's been a while, so I want to kind of review it real quick. And I will use my favorite example of position, which is Mad Men. And there's an episode in Mad Men in which Don and Ted are sitting there in the room talking about margarine, which, let's be fair, is a great example for what they are about to talk about because margarines are all the same. They are hydrogenated oils and some uh, milk fats maybe, and there it is. And it's a, it's a, it's a chemical process. It is a, an emulsion of spreadable oil. It barely has any flavor whatsoever. They're all the same. No one goes, ooh, gotta get me some margarine. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. And so what they're trying to do is figure out how do you sell this brand of margarine? And, he, and, and Ted came up with this idea of, look, in any space, I go to Gilligan's Island. 
there's a professor, there's a skipper, there are the Howells, there's the Ginger, there's the Marianne. There's a persona connected to each one of those brands that allows it to differentiate and position itself relative to the others. So for example, the Howells is the luxury brand. It is for people who not only want to uh, not only who are hoity-toity, but who want to appear hoity-toity and rich and, and full of taste, though again, it's margarine, so it's uh, within the margins, right? Um, you, the professor is the erudite, the smart one, the clever one. The skipper is the leadership. It is, a, it is the, the authority driver. Gilligan is the everyman and sometimes the idiot man. You've got, I mean, let's be fair, just the, the Ginger Marianne dichotomy of they're both attractive women, but in such very different ways, they are a very different personas and positions. One is about glamour, and one is about the person next door. Both attractive, both interesting, both useful, but again, it's positioning. And I always think that's an amazing way to describe. And if you look at different brands, you can absolutely do the Gilligan's Island test. You can look at cars, you can look at, you know, breakfast cereals, you can look at, let's take, I don't know, dish soap or laundry detergent or something like that. And you might say, James, how in the world can something be the Marianne of dish soap? How can something be the Howl of dish soap? I was like, well, let's, that's a good question. That's a good question. So if you go to a Target or you go to a Walmart or you go to your grocery store and you're on that aisle with all the different detergents and all the dish soaps, you go, well, they all look kind of the same. They're all various shades of glowy blue or green and sometimes orange, right? You just pick one and go, or maybe the bottle isn't see-through, and you're like, oh, maybe when you squeeze it out, it's kind of pearlescent-y white stuff, right? And it's soap. You stick it on a sponge, you scrub your dishes with it, right? Everybody does that, and I'm not, I'm not the only one, right? Millions of people scrub their dishes this way, great. Standing in the aisle, it is hard to tell the difference between those brands because they have such very limited space in which to establish their brand. Why? That is actually why they spend so insanely much money on TV commercials and magazine ads and banners and all this other stuff is because that's where there's space to say this brand of detergent is the luxury brand. This brand of, of dish soap is the safe brand. This brand of dish soap is the effective brand. And there's, you're saying, but they're all, they're all claimed to be effective. I said, yeah, sort of. I mean, yes, they all wash dishes. That is the table stakes of what that position is. However, some of them talk about it's incredibly gentle on your hands. It's for people who want to feel attractive and glamorous. Well, there you go. Congratulations. You have your, your ginger. You have, this is one is the, is the expensive one. You can only get it in certain stores. You don't get it anywhere. That's a luxury brand. That's a higher end brand. Even if it is just dish soap, they talk about it. The when they do a commercial, the people using it are clearly wealthy. Or maybe even they have the help doing the dishes, right? This is for people who want the best of the best, and that's very much a Howell brand. Maybe you've got, um, let's, let, maybe it's the brand, what's, what's the one? And I'm, you know, I'm going to screw up the brand, so I'm not going to know. But there's one that they use, and they say it's so great at cutting grease, they use it to scrub animals who have been caught in oil spills. And you now know what exactly what brand I'm talking about. Like that is a brand that talks about caring. It's dish soap. <laughs> dish soap doesn't care. It's a chemical soap. It's there to break oil up and that's the end of that and to wash away cleanly. Suddenly, this is a brand of dish soap which is chemically identical to a hundred other brands of dish soap and yet this is the one that cares? Notice 
that no one ever says if brand X is the one that they use to show how to scrub the, the little duckling caught in the oil spill, does brand Y also work that well? I don't know. Brand Y can't say it because brand X already has. They've established the position. And that is what position is all about. Once you stake out your territory to say, this is what we're all about, boom, it's harder for other companies to come in. It's harder for other brands to come in and say, no, no, that's our territory. Right? Think about your, 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 your smartphone. Do we still call it a smartphone? It's just a phone, your mobile, your cell, whatever it's called. Unless you've got a flip phone, in which case, uh, I have questions. You really have one of two flavors of phones. You've got Apple. You've got not Apple, sometimes referred to as Android, right? The Google phone, whatever. And Apple now has like five different versions of their phone. Each one of their versions has a couple different internal flavors, both colors and the amount of memory they have. But let's be fair, memory doesn't count because no one can see that. Colors, sometimes they can see. But I can, you know, I remember when the, uh, the was it the 10 came out? And you're like, ooh, that's the one with the notch. And on some level, the notch was ugly, and as the owner of an iPhone 11, which also has the notch, which I think is stupid, but I understand why it has to be, to some extent, that notch was there to say, look, I have the newest phone. It was an indication that I have the high-end phone. And back when the iPhone 10 or X or whatever the hell it was called was $1,000, the first $1,000 phone, literally more expensive than a Mac Air. Uh, what? <laughs> But that was the thing. It had a notch. It had subtle differences to show people, I have the best phone. The position is, this is the best phone. People who have this are the howls of their brain. They have the best phone. They can afford and signal to others, this is the best phone and I possess it. Someone who has a Samsung phone or a Huawei phone or any number of other variations, are they less luxurious? Well, it's a perception thing. It's a, it's a position thing. If I know you only spent $400 on the phone, I might make some judgments about who you are, but you might tell yourself, yeah, but I'm the Gilligan. I don't need a $1,000 phone. I'm an everyman. I don't have to, I don't need certain levels of, I don't need the feature that allows me to look at it and it turns my face into a unicorn and it pretends to talk the way I talk. I don't think I need to spend an extra $300 for a feature like that. That's not who I am. Therefore, the position is, look, this is a great phone for anybody. And notice that Apple recently released its brand new phone, I think it's the SE or whatever it's called, for 500 bucks or 400 bucks. It's an insanely low price for that phone and the guts of it are exactly the same as almost the top, top, top level phone. And that's where things get complicated. You have to wonder, is Apple trying to say, here's the every person phone? Here's a phone for anybody? Is it trying to take over Google Share? When it tries to say it is the phone for everybody, does that change its ability to say, here is, uh, we also are the owners of the high-end phone, the aspirational phone. How can you be both every person and aspirational at the same time? And that is a complicated issue. And what that's showing you is that even smart companies can make decisions which make its brand position a little less obvious. Because let's be fair, for a very, 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 very long time, no one looked at a Mac, no one looked at an Apple, no one looked at an iPhone and went, there's the cheap one. There's the uh, uh, value price, value selection. That's the value product. No, they went, that's the high end. Even the Mac Air, it was light, it was, you could throw it in an envelope, you could do a thing, blah, blah, blah. It was still, even though it was a simple computer, relatively speaking, 
and it wasn't expensive expensive, but compared to others, yeah, it was more expensive. You paid a premium for what they did. They were able to position themselves as we are the premium product. People pay more for us because it's worth it. And now they can also come along and say, but we also offer this other thing, which is a value version. It's complicated. Anyway, we've kind of wandered far afield. Position is your ability to say, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. This is what we're about and how it differentiates you. We've talked about this and it's hard to know what I've talked about, but um, I've done a lot of webinars lately, right? <laughs> but, you know, show me the hospital that doesn't say our position is we care about our customers. We care about our patients. You all do. The real question is show me the hospital that doesn't care. That's the hospital I want to avoid, but no one says that. Everybody, every hospital, every healthcare system cares about taking care of customers. Every pharmaceutical company cares about innovation and, and, and changing the world and, and making lives better through drugs. That's their existence. There's no pharma company that says, we don't like to innovate. That, 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 then you're not a pharma company. <laughs> that's not, I don't know what you're doing, but that's not who you are. The trick is in a position is to say, position dictates differentiation. Because are you the Marianne? Are you the Ginger? Are you the Gilligan? Are you the Howells? Are you the what are the Skipper? The the Professor? What are you? And the better you can say we're this thing, and prove that we're this thing. And proving is a function of making sure that everything around you indicates that. If you try to tell everybody you're the value, uh, uh, you're the, the the Gilligan's every person product or brand, and yet over here you have super expensive stuff, or there you're you're geeking out and and being the nerd. It doesn't align. You can be the professor or the Gilligan. You just can't be both, right? So you've got to look at your own position and your own brand because the position dictates creative, and that's really the powerful part. Think about all the great creative out in the world that you want to make. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah, that's a nice you know, camera they used to make it. Yeah, that was a great shot. Yeah, that was some nice lighting. Yeah, that was a nice effect. Yeah, that was a cool kind of layout. That was a really nice kind of design. But the power and value is not a function of how creative it was. Its power and value is a function of its position. Here's another example. You've all seen the video by now showing that every in these uncertain times video, right? The COVID video are all the same, right? All the different supercuts of the people saying the same things over and over again in different kind of situations and, and different contexts. And sometimes it's a talking head and sometimes it's a voiceover and sometimes it's a pictures of people doing work and sometimes people with masks or whatever it is. But it's a supercut of people saying the same things. And I think what's interesting about the pandemic is that it's really highlighted how most people get the concept of positioning wrong. They're so focused on saying a safe message and trying to dress it up with some creativity, some visuals, some, some interesting music, some different layouts, right? Just make it more creative. That they don't realize that because they haven't established and focused on their position, the creative is just window dressing. Position is about saying something meaningful because you understand who you are and you understand what you want to communicate to people who want what you are, right? That's the trick. Remember, we talked about quality versus quantity, and I think it's so crucial about what we do is that it's our job as an employer brand is not to be the company that everyone wants to work for because there should be no such thing. I think Google 
knows how, you know, as the quote-unquote number one most desired employer for years and years and years and now, which I don't know if that's going to last for too much longer, just because they've been number one for so long, how long can they be that? I, they get thousands of resumes every single day. And I know for a fact that most people don't even look at most of them, right? They have software that looks at and scans and maybe tries to pick something useful. To them, being the number one employer is a blessing, but it's absolutely a curse because they have such huge quantity of people who want to work at the company that makes Gmail or the company that makes their phone that they don't understand why people want to work there. They, you know, do people want to work at Google because they feel some sort of intrinsic internal connection? Their soul matches their corporate soul. That it's a it's a it's a meeting of minds. It's a match. It's a value add kind of situation where this person gets what Google's all about and knows how to add value to it. Or do they just like a really nice free lunch? Do they just like really good coffee and have access to coffee twenty four seven and six different kinds of milk? What is it that they want from Google? Do they want to be innovative or do they want the Google that's been the number one employer for a long time so therefore there must be a level of prestige? Or they want the Google that, let's be fair, is not going to lose any money anytime soon so they want to be in a place that's fairly stable. What is it they want in a Google? Now think of Google and I think Google's a great example of this. But you could take any big company in a similar vein and say the problems are exactly the same. If you're Google, you can get people who want to work there because you're innovative. You can get people who want to work there because it's stable. You can get people who want to work there because it's prestigious. You can get people who want to work there because there's a whole don't be evil platform that they've been building on. There's a social responsibility platform that they've been building on. You can get people who want to work there because of the dynamic work environment. You can get people who want to work there because you call it. There's so many different reasons people could want to work for Google that I don't know that Google knows why it wants to hire certain people. It hasn't done a great job projecting, look, yeah, you can get prestige and you can get innovation, you can get stability, but the thing we're all about is the don't be evil thing. That is primary. Now, they haven't had to really kind of lay it on the line and draw that line and say, look, it's this, not that. But if they did, I suspect that their application rate would absolutely drop which for some of us would be horrible, 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 horrifying and horrible, depending on where you're from. Yikes. Um, <laughs> recorded live in Chicago, folks. Um, that is no excuse. But it would be horrible because it would, you know, we don't want less applicants, though truly we don't want more. We actually do want less. We just don't trust that if we got less, we'd still get the same quality. So going back to Google. If they said we're all about innovation and who cares about stability and prestige, that's not what we're here for, they would get a different kind of talent. They would get a different kind of applicant. They would get a different quantity of applicants. That is a strategic choice. They haven't made it because what they've done instead is create workarounds to say, look, we know how to filter and process the sheer volume of applicants we get. And we probably have some software behind the scenes that say, okay, pull out the people we really should talk to without having to say, don't talk to me, but I want you to talk to me. If you're in here for prestige, I don't care. I don't want to talk to you. That's not the right motivation for us. If you're here for innovation, we absolutely do. Or vice versa. I don't know. I don't have an insight on that. But that's what we mean by positioning. And so many companies get away with avoiding it. But the time has come that it's, it's getting to the point where you can't. 
You absolutely have to understand what your position as an employer, as an employer brand is truly all about. Now, once you define that position, and there are a lot of ways to do it, happy to talk about it, that's, that's a pitched conversation. We don't want to get into that today, unless you want to, in which case you know how to find me. But once you define your position, that starts to dictate some of the creative choices you can make. Now, the problem with that statement is that it sounds like I'm telling you you can't be as creative. I'm limiting your creativity. And I'm not. I'm really not. What I'm saying is, is once you understand what the intention of your creative is supposed to be, what it's trying to engage with, who it's trying to reach, what's going to matter to that person, right? Not just about, hey, we have, we have a job, you should apply here. But this is going to satisfy some of your more deeper intrinsic drivers and motivations. Once you understand what that is, you start to realize that plenty of choices that sound fun are wrong, right? Could be fun to make a dance video. It could be fun to make a TikTok but you're a law firm. Don't do that. <laughs> you're a hospital. Careful. <laughs> TikTok is not necessarily for you. Um, you're an investment firm. Maybe no, 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 no with the TikTok. No gracias. Um, and you're thinking, oh God, there are things I'm not allowed to do. And I, and I, I think that begets or comes from a, a imperfectly understood sense of what creativity really is about. Creativity isn't about how much paint can you throw on the canvas. It's about and this is where we started. What do you want someone to feel about you at the end of that viewing of piece of art, right? What did Jackson Pollock want people to think of when it saw all those squiggles and wiggles? What did Picasso want people to think about or feel when they saw all the square cows in Guernica? What did Van Gogh want people to feel when he saw the, 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 the crows in the cornfield? What do you want people to feel? Once you define who you are and where you stand and what you want people to feel and how those things are connected, you get to go, and this is what I think misunderstood, deeper. Your creativity gets to get deeper. For example, let's say I pitched you a story about, hey, we're going to do a DNI video, and it's just going to be people standing in a room holding cards. And they're just holding cards, and maybe we're going to write some messages on it. Now, if I pitch that to you, you'd be like, that sounds horrible. That sounds stupid. Did you think of that on the cab ride over? Could you not put a little time into this? And yet somehow, if you, and many of you know the video I'm talking about, I, um, and I'm going to misappropriate, misattribute where that video came from. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to do it. But if you look for it, um, you'd find it. But there are people standing there with cards talking about how they're different and how they know they're being perceived as different. And it includes, and this is what I think is very fascinating, white dudes who say, because I'm a white dude, I'm not allowed to cry, or I'm not allowed to be weak, or I'm not allowed to care about my kids as much. It's the projections of things we know people put on us because of how we look and, and our, either our sexuality, our gender, our skin tone, our ethnicity, our, our religion, what have you. We know what that projection is. And if you've seen it, if you've seen it, you know it kills. It is absolutely one of the best videos at projecting what a brand is all about and doing so in a DNI space, which let's be fair, is a hard field to play on. So how, how is it possible that a pitch that sounded like crap, something you made up on the cab right over, is actually so good? Well, it knows its position. 
It knows its intention and what it may, wants you to feel, and it got to go deeper. You think that they wrote those cards kind of spur of the moment? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's the most amazing thing about these things is I don't think people realize how much thought goes into every frame, every pixel of one of these videos. How much thought, every millisecond of screen time before or after a cut, where those cuts occur, when you know, all the music choices, all the lighting choices, one gets zoomed in just a little bit or you get to see it and then you see a slightly zoomed in version that's almost barely perceptible that is zoomed in, but having been zoomed in, you feel something because of that. That stuff is freaking magical. That's creativity because it's trying to serve a good of what do I want someone to feel? And what looks on the surface like an easy, simple thing to do was incredibly hard. It was probably incredibly hard to pitch. It was probably incredibly hard to put together and build the brief for. It was probably incredibly hard to shoot to make sure how many takes did they have of people standing there? Should they have blank faces? Should they have smiley faces? Should they look sad? What should they look about? Do you think they took versions of people holding those signs with five different emotions on their faces and then figured out in editing how to put them all together? You have no idea how much work that is if you've never done it. It's an insane amount of work. But the value, the outcome, the output is unbelievably creative. And I know it's created because it's like three or four years later and I'm still talking about it. And I know other people still talk about it as one of the best videos in our space that we've ever seen. And it's not because they came up with a better font for those signs. It's not because they came up with the prettiest people to hold those signs. It's because they understood their position and they understood what they wanted people to feel. And that, and those two things are not independent. Those two things are connected. If you know your position, you know what you want someone to feel. If you know your position is as a law firm, you don't want people to feel happy and joyful because if they feel that way, why would they want to work there? You're, you're a law firm. That's not what you do. That's not what you're all about. If people feel happy for working for you, it's relative to other law firms. That is, the bar's kind of low. But if you don't know what you're all about, if you don't know your own position, you're either going to make a video that looks like everybody else's video and by the way, I apologize I'm harping on video. I don't know why. It's just an easy example. We're talking about profiles. We're talking about creative sites or uh, career sites. We're talking about um, social posts. We're talking about anything creative in our space. These rules apply. But if you don't know your position, whatever you create is going to look like everybody else's. And that's not creativity. That is not at all creative whatsoever. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. I'll see you next week. Go to Amazon. Go look me up. James Ellis, Talent Chooses You, or the Employer Brand Handbook. They're both there. Pre-order them. Buy them. I would love if you could read, write a review. I would love to hear what you think about it. I really would appreciate that. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Bye. This has been an episode of The Talent Cast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you'd like to get in touch with me, a couple ways to do that. Obviously, there's Twitter, at The War for Talent. You can go to the podcast website at thetalentcast.com. If you'd like to stay up to date on the news of this industry and what's going on, just go to employerbrand.news and sign up for the email newsletter with lots of news and links to other places. If you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn and just say hello or let's just talk, that's linkedin.com slash in slash The War for Talent. Or I bet if you just search for James Ellis, I pop up pretty quick. Otherwise, if you have any questions, concerns, considerations, ideas for podcasts, holler at me. Let me know what's going on. Thank you if you've shared it. Please share if you haven't. Rate us, review us. I love all that stuff. It really does help kind of keep the message going and get the message out there. 
Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.